Well, I'm going to uh, put you on the spot this morning. Uh, if you did any Bible reading this week, will you raise your hand? Okay, excellent, excellent. Now I want to ask those of you who raised your hand a question. I don't want you to answer it, but I would like you to think about it. Why did you read your Bible this week? Did you do so because you wanted to? Because someone challenged you to do so? Because it was a class assignment, you were getting ready for a class or to teach a class? Or because you felt like you had to? You know, actually, any of those answers can be good or bad, but the last one is particularly dangerous. There's nothing wrong with reading your Bible because you know you should. But if you are reading it because you think your salvation depends upon it, that's a problem. In fact, if you read your Bible, pray, tithe, worship, and witness, in order to be saved, you have a problem. If you think God is keeping score, and if you don't measure up to the expected standard when it comes to religious practices, you'll be lost. You have a problem. Now, reading the Bible, praying, tithing, attending worship services, and witnessing are all good things. And they're pretty much expected of Christians. If you believe God has spoken... You'll want to know what he said. You'll be in his word. If you believe God listens, you will pray. If you believe God has promised to meet your physical needs, you won't feel a need to steal from him. You will tithe. If you believe Jesus loves you enough to die for you, you will worship him and you'll remember him. And his sacrifice by meeting around his table on the Lord's Day. If you believe people without Jesus are lost, condemned, you will share the gospel with them. You will do all of these things. But these things are not conditions for your salvation. Doing them will not balance out your debt of sin nor will they earn you standing before God. They are his will for you, and doing them brings him pleasure. But your relationship with him will not be severed if you fail to do them. You're saved by grace, through faith in the finished work of Christ, period. Or, as we noted last week, after the sermon in our discussion class, you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. It's a continual process of a relationship. And all this will be yours through trusting 
in what Christ did for you. Period. It's all about him and what he did for us, not about us and what we do for him. That is the message of Galatians. And Paul has been saying it over and over, every way he can, because this is a hard lesson for us to learn. There's an overwhelming tendency to want to tack on works of merit to what Christ has done for us, to add a little law to grace just in case. And we want to cover all the bases. We trust in Christ, but we also think we better add good works to the mix just in case they're taken into consideration. You know, we'd rather have too much than not enough. And we feel more secure if we think we've got both law and grace going for us. That's what the Judaizers were saying. And Paul is going to try again to make us understand that law and grace simply do not mix. You can be under law. You can be under grace, but you cannot be under both. We're in the fifth chapter of Galatians this morning, verses 2 through 4. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Now, Paul isn't entering into the medical debate over the value of circumcision here. He's addressing the theological implications of ceremonial circumcision. And he does so with some shocking words and the full authority of an apostle. He says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Apparently, the Gentiles in the church hadn't yet followed through on their intended circumcisions. And Paul warns them if they do, Christ will be of no benefit to them. Now, how can he say that to Christians? How can he say that Christ will be of no benefit to you? Well, obviously, Paul is not thinking of Christ's good example or his moral teachings, he's thinking about his fundamental role as Savior. If the men of Galatia agreed to be ceremonially circumcised, they would be putting themselves back under the law. And they would be obligating themselves to keep the whole law. Now, when circumcision was first instituted, it was given as a sign of God's covenant with Abraham. 
It was a positive reminder that Abraham and his offspring were in a special relationship with God. That covenant, however, was conditioned by faith and trust. And Abraham's descendants didn't maintain a faith relationship with God. So the law was given through Moses to make them aware just how far they had strayed from God's will. And circumcision became a reminder of the need to obey the law of God and a personal pledge to do so. Circumcision was therefore no longer a sign of promise. It was a pledge of obedience. And if the Galatians followed through on circumcision, as the Judaizers were insisting that they do, they would be putting themselves under obligation to keep the law, all of the law. And they would be telling God that they could do what no one had ever been able to do that they could indeed keep the law, that they accepted the terms of the law, and that they were convinced that they could live lives in perfect obedience to the law. In effect, they would be telling God that they did not need his grace, that they could save themselves. Now, the primary purpose of the law had been to show mankind how far he had strayed from fellowship with God and to make it clear that his fallen nature made it impossible for him to live a life that would be acceptable to a perfect God. God wanted us to understand that he had to provide the way for us to be made acceptable before him, a way that did not depend upon personal merit. God had provided that way. Through his son. And the Galatians had accepted it. But now, if they chose to enter into a different relationship with God, one based on law and initiated by circumcision, they would be severed from Christ. They would be saying, in effect, that they did not need him. They could save themselves through obedience to the law. And make no mistake, any attempt, any attempt to be justified by obedience severs a man from Christ. It cuts him off from Christ because in doing so, he is declaring that he doesn't need Christ. It moves him from a relationship with God that is dependent upon grace And puts him into a relationship that is based on works. His own works. Paul says if you do that, you fall from grace. You cut yourself off from the grace of God. And do note that that does affirm the possibility of falling from grace. That you can be in grace at one point and then fall out of grace. You can lose the means of your salvation. But also note that Paul does not say you fall from grace by sinning. That's important. 
You don't lose the grace of God because you fail to live up to his expectations. The fact of the matter is, you fall into grace when you sin. If you are trusting Christ to save you, every time you sin, the safety net of his grace catches you. So no, you don't fall from grace when you sin. But you do fall from grace if you attempt to live under the law. If you, in effect, tell God you don't need what he has provided that you can save yourself. That's what the Galatians would be doing if they submitted to circumcision. So, yes, you can be under the law, but to do so cuts you off from grace. See, you better think again before starting down that dead-end road to God. You better remember what you have under grace. Verses 5 and 6. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For if Christ, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Paul says we, we Christians, have come into a relationship with God Through the Spirit. We were spiritually born again into His family as sons and daughters. And by nature of that birth, we're acceptable to the Father. We did nothing to earn it, we merely accepted it as He instructed us to do. And by faith we trusted that God had made us acceptable to himself. That he had declared us to be righteous through the merit of Christ's righteousness. And that someday he will actually make us righteous. That one day we will be given a body that is absolutely free from sin and its effects. A body that will be equal to the spirit that we now have as a result of His Spirit coming to dwell within us. For that day, we are waiting. We're not working for it. We're simply waiting for it. Waiting for the fulfillment of our hope. The hope, the assurance that God will make us righteous, fit to spend eternity with Him. And it will have nothing to do with our having kept the law or not, or with our having been circumcised or not. The only thing that will matter is our faith, whether or not we are trusting him to save us. Now, that trust, that faith, will be evident in our lives. And that's why Paul adds that our faith will be working through love. He doesn't want us to get the idea that our waiting will be passively doing nothing. It'll be a time of actively expressing our faith 
through love. It will be a time of service, of ministry to God and to our fellow man. It will be a time of actively doing things that bring pleasure to our Heavenly Father and refraining from those things that bring Him pain. But it will not be a time of earning our salvation by what we do or don't do. Our salvation will come solely through the grace of God. And we can therefore confidently await and expect His return. That's what it means to be under grace. And it can be ours through Christ. But if we try to tack on a little law, we lose it. Because we cannot be under both. Verses 7 through 12. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you that the Lord, have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. You were running well. The Galatians had gotten off to a good start. And Paul knew that because he had been there at the start of their race. But something had gotten them off course. They had switched lanes. Apparently something or someone had hindered them. And the word used for hindered speaks of breaking up the road, of making it rough, something that was often done before an advancing army. Someone had hindered them. And when Paul asked, who hindered you? It was a rhetorical question. He knew who it was, or at least he knew who they were, is the Judaizers. And while they appeared to be very religious, their teaching was not from God. Their persuasive words did not come from him. And their words were apparently very persuasive. When Paul said a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough, he may have been referring to the spread of their teaching among the Galatians. As yeast permeates a lump of bread dough, so had the Judaizers' teaching permeated the Galatian church. And their teaching was certainly attractive. It sounded so religious. In fact, it added a little more religiosity to religion. It added works to faith which sounded twice as good as faith alone. But it doesn't work that way. 
And the parable that Paul quoted could also be pointing out that as leaven changes the nature of dough, so works of merit added to faith change the nature of faith. It changes it from faith in God to faith in ourselves. And Paul is confident that the Galatians will understand this now that he has said it 14 different ways in this letter. And he reminds them that those who have been disturbing them, who got them off track, will be judged for doing so. And they would be judged for misrepresenting him. Apparently they had been saying that Paul actually taught the importance of circumcision. And they no doubt pointed to the fact that he had Timothy circumcised, ignoring, of course, his reason for doing so. He had Timothy circumcised because he was half Jewish. And remaining uncircumcised would have been a real hindrance to his ministry among the Jews. But Paul was not preaching circumcision. If he had been, he wouldn't be persecuted by the Jews. They would have accepted him and his teaching as merely an alternative form of Judaism. And the offense of the cross would have been abolished. And what was the offense of the cross? It wasn't the horror of a crucifixion. It was the realization that a man could not save himself. That he could do nothing to find favor with God and was totally dependent upon God's grace for salvation. Now, that makes people uncomfortable. Most want to think they can earn it and therefore deserve it. It makes them feel less indebted to God. But the cross strips away all pretense of spiritual achievement and cuts out the ground for spiritual pride. And that's why religious people in particular generally find the cross offensive. And that's why the Judaizers were teaching a mixture of law and grace. It felt good to know you were doing something to deserve salvation. And circumcision, they insisted, was the place to start. Paul countered their demand by saying, Would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Literally, he says, they should cut themselves off. And when speaking of circumcision, that is very graphic indeed. The pagan priests of Sybil actually castrated themselves as an act of devotion to their God. 
And Paul may be suggesting that if circumcision gained favor with God, surely castration would gain even more. If the Judaizers were going to teach that circumcision is pleasing to God, they should go further. Maybe that would shock the Galatians into realizing the fallacy of thinking that they could do anything to earn standing with God. Because once you start down the path of earning it, you can never do enough. You either trust God to save you, or you trust Yourself. It's impossible to do both. So who are you going to trust? I pray you've chosen to only trust him and him alone. Let's stand.